Good day, good evening, and good streaming. I am Jello Biafra, and this is Renegade Roundtable, back coming at you. And who we have today is an extremely powerful woman that I uh, have long admired from <laughs> close and afar as she makes fists at me <laughs> and stuff and then smiles. Anyway, um... Originally, she was the, uh, let's keep the gender neutral here and call you the front creature of one of the original OG LA punk bands from clear back in 77 and a place called The Mask, which has to be described to be believed as far as, a, you know, it wasn't CBGBs. It was something very different. And uh, band was called The Bags. And then when The Bags kind of went away, I didn't hear from Alice for a long time, but then it it turns out she never went away and has been making both music and other kind of activism for years. When I finally saw Alice Bag or the Alice Bag Band, as she now call, calls at least uh, uh, live, do the solo show, the music was really good. Your voice was better than it ever has been, and it was always a good voice. But and rumor was you were even taking singing lessons in the later later part of the bags to try and sing better. <laughs> and if you did, they sure worked. <laughs> anyway, um, so now what impressed me the most about seeing you at punk rock bowling on the same little outdoor thing where the weirdos and even television played earlier, then you were in the, the sheltered part of the park, the sheltered workshop, if you will. The uh, and I now I'm talking to is you. So yes, I'm talking about to Alice Bag and um and you were inside with your band. We went in and I was amazed that there were all these women, teens into their mid or late twenties, all just crowded in a semicircle around you, hanging on your every word. And there was a lot of words to be had because you gave a lot of short-term talks and empowering, you know, almost in your own way, Patti Smith level inspiration, bits of wisdom aimed at that particular audience, but also affecting the rest of us. And I, you know, I said before, I couldn't tell you how impressed I was with that. And then I go see you again at Gilman Street and there's another clump of women gathered right around the front of the stage. You know, somehow you have gotten, you know, people found out about you and are just drawn to this and everything. And, you know, you've done educational seminars, women in rock, a, a blog interviewing women in the early L.A. punk scene. Glad somebody is doing that. And uh, so I guess nowadays, what you fall under the category of, even with these great records you're making again, is influencer. <laughs> yes. Influencing people. Yeah, I think I had that egg thrown on me more than once in my life, including author of, among other books, the as well as school teacher and single mom, Violence Girl by Alice Bag, mostly about the punk days. And it says a Chicana punk story. So that falls into the general question, what created you. And I haven't heard the term Chicana or Chicano in decades. I always liked it when I was a kid. And it was one of these things where kind of like one minute it was colored people, then you had to say Negro, then it was black, then it was African-American, then it was back to black, and then African-American. In the meantime, you could say people of color, but not colored people. Meanwhile, growing up in Colorado, the term used for the substantial Latino and 
native population there was Spanish American. Oh, yeah, okay. kind of insulting considering the feelings about the Spaniards by uh, anybody from south of the border and many people north of the border. And um, so then, then when uh, the Denver Post and the paper of records still kind of got kind of got shit about that, Mexican Americans started to rear its head, and there weren't as many, say, Salvadorans or Guatemalans or Nicaraguans, South Americans in Colorado as there are in the Bay Area and probably LA too. But um, then Chicano came out, and that was more the, the civil rights one, the battle cry one, Chicano, Chicana, and that was the term of record until one fine day it became, instead of Chicano, Latino, before people put an X on it. But before that, when everybody was saying Chicano, the Denver Post was not going to tolerate that. Just like sportscasters that would deliberately pronounce Latin baseball players' names wrong, like Hernandez or <laughs> Bob Clemente or whatever, you know, that, that was part of how they, they hazed people and stuff. Well, the Denver Post suddenly decided to switch from Spanish-American or Mexican-American to Hispano. People were Hispanos, which, of course, was then seen as the Denver Post little <laughs> slur on the whole Chicano greater community. But then the next thing you know, years later, Hispanic is okay. But you're bringing back Chicana, Chicano. So before we dig deeper into what created you, um, how widespread is the Chicano, Chicana, or hopefully not Chicano X revival, because then it's going to be pronounced Chicano. Well, my guideline is I always ask people what they want to be called, and then I call them that, because that's the best way not to insult anybody. So Good you know, point. my my feeling is I decided to embrace the term Chicano. Um, when I first went to the Chicano Moratorium when I was a young kid, my father tried to get me not to use that term. And he said, you know what, that was a slur when we were uh, when we first got to the United States, people would call us Chicano. And I think it was, you know, somehow related to chicanery, somehow like like someone that wasn't trustworthy, that was, you know, not, not too, uh, it was just a slur. So my dad really like was down on it. And hence, I called myself Mexican-American for most of my life. Um, having talked to a lot of people who prefer a lot of different terms, I just go with whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, good point that I need to keep relearning almost on a daily basis. But uh, yeah, I mean, both your parents were from Mexico, right? Both my parents were from Mexico, Chihuahua and Coahuila, which are both northern states. So you are full, you know, first generation yeah. Chicano-American, first generation American. Yeah, I am. And uh, the weird thing about that is that, you know, you grow up and you kind of think you're Mexican, or at least I did, because my parents spoke Spanish at home. My mother only made Mexican food. We only watched Spanish language television and listened to Spanish radio. So like when I got to school and nobody spoke Spanish, I was like, my mind just like, what did you know over. any English at all? I didn't know any English, none. Like they just threw me in there. <laughs> And assumed that I would, you know, somehow survive. And survive I did, but not before, like, you know, having been exposed to teachers who would make me feel like I was inferior in some way because I didn't speak their language. And actually having faced, like, uh, the experience of being told, like, 
if you speak your language in the classroom, you have to stay in for recess. So that was kind of a drag. <laughs> <laughs> Might have almost been worth it in a way, passing secret messages that Whitey running the schools wouldn't <laughs> understand. I wish I'd been talking shit about the teacher. That would have made it worthwhile. But I was actually just trying to understand what was going on. I was a really nice kid. Well, maybe not always, but I, I was trying. Well, it's clear from your book you were always very feisty. You know, even even before the punk scene, you know, if somebody pinched your <laughs> ass at the mask you'd whack them i would i i was uh somebody who would not tolerate that kind of stuff i i and that came from you asked who like what formed me you know it's my mom and dad the relationship between my mother and my father my father being an abusive man my mother and sister and i being like you know, kind of traumatized by that, like having this man come in and just kind of like turn the household upside down and having witnessed violence directed at my mother was violence that we all experienced. So even though it wasn't directed at us, we still felt it. It still hurt us. Um, So I felt that was always, it's always shaped my feminism, but it's always also um, shaped my sense of like, wanting to be in a position of having enough power to defend myself. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe passing that on to others, you wouldn't have people crowded around the front of the stage getting as much as you could pass on and then they could pass on as they possibly could. In the book, it says what you were about 12 when you finally jumped in the middle and either physically attacked or at least screamed at your father telling him to stop beating your mother. Yeah, um, I I had tried to um, to stop my father in the past, but I was you know I was too young and too small, physically not powerful enough to stop him. So he just swatted me out of the way. Uh, and there were times when he also tried to get me to be involved in the um, humiliation of my mother, and uh, that was very painful. But yeah, eventually I think my father just realized that he was really fucking me up and he eventually stopped. I think he stopped for several reasons because by the time I entered my teens, not only was I much bigger and much more able to like restrain him, but I was also like, I would just go off and I'd like, you know, I, he realized (laughs) this, she's going crazy. She's going to like, you know, go out and hurt somebody. Um, and, and did your sister, was, she's Miranda, right? That was your older no, sister? No, my sister's name is Yolanda. Yolanda. Oh, yeah. sorry. And my sister, um, my sister got married when I was, I think, in fifth grade, and she moved out. Oh, okay. And my brothers also, I have two half-brothers and half and two half-sisters, and none of them were around. I, I actually, like, kind of feel like my brothers couldn't couldn't be around without feeling like they wanted to kill my father. Um, and it's, it's and they were his biological they sons were not. or not? They were not. Oh. So I think they could have killed him. And I think my mom just like, you know, said, you guys have to go live somewhere else. They were older anyway, but I feel like she was trying to save them from killing him and maybe even trying to save him. But, but I mean, it was another time. Yeah. So her, her relationship with my father was very complicated because she was dependent on him financially. And the way she had been brought up, she couldn't see a way to sustain herself. The book is really, really well written. 
Thank you. So did you dictate it or did you write it out longhand or on a computer? I blogged it. I actually um, sat down every morning and uh, I would, I, I, I didn't, I'm not like a single mom. My husband was in the picture, but he lived in a different city. So I would put my daughter on the bus at like 730 and then I'd sit down with a cup of coffee and I would start writing and uh, I wouldn't allow myself to have lunch until I had something, I'd generated enough for a blog post. And is this the same daughter who you, who you say in the book inspired you to write the book at Comic-Con when you took her to Comic-Con? Yeah, I went to Comic-Con and I actually saw Jane Weedlin who had just put out a comic book. What was it called? Uh, like robotica or something like like lady robotica i think it was called <laughs> and uh and i loved it i loved the drawings i love the idea like I, actually jane and i have a lot of like things that we like in common and i was talking about it um to my husband and he was like yeah that's that's a cool idea uh but that wasn't enough to like you know that was enough to that was not enough to put me over the edge I actually had some girlfriends that were working on a play. Uh, they were working on this play called The Barber of East L.A., and it took place during the 70s and 60s. And so they wanted me to tell them stories about what East L.A. was like in the 60s and 70s, just kind of as background for their play. And, uh, and what I did, you know, they, they suggested that I write a book. And when I told my husband that, he said, like, let's set up, a uh, uh, blog for you and he left the laptop open on the table and it was formatted already it said the true life adventures of violence girl and so i took it as kind of an invitation but also kind of kind of a challenge yeah and having yeah. to only write one page a day i think is the key for anybody who's writing anything ambitious like a book like if you just say i'm just going to write one page a day it's like really doable yeah i'm so slow especially the first sentence or something <laughs> that uh, one page a day would probably be well into the night even in my hours and chew up everything else couldn't do it before lunch or even dinner but uh, i get hit up by that all the time and i'm you know there's so many other books does anybody really need mine yes well, uh, yes <laughs> in some ways but uh you know especially pre-punk because you also touch on a lot of stuff in the 70s, very different from me, but still, you know, it's an it's an era after everybody grew up in the 60s and then before, you know, the late 70s and before the punk thing or whatever, where, you know, we were not dazed and confused. Right. Which, you know, people rarely even visit that era. We were kind of disgusted <laughs> with uh, you know, home life, although my parents were not as insane as your father yeah. was, but still it was, a, it was a state of siege at times. I mean, in many ways they were very progressive and downright radical. Like my mom is 94, hates Trump more than anyone I know. <laughs> wow, that's, that's great. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, as parents, there was uh, <laughs> totalitarian things that me, that rebellious me didn't like. So uh, as soon as I moved away, Things got much better. Ma's were my best friends now and has been for many years. It's also uh, interesting. Yeah, the book, The Violence Girl, at least, is out on Feral House, yeah. which kind of took me a little bit by surprise because in some corners, Feral House's reputation is as a publishing house for people who are 
pretty far to the right. Oh, really? In different ways. And um, not all, though. You know, it's kind of, we'll take all comers and the freedom of speech round. They have that book, Extreme Islam, with the points of view of the people who believed that when everybody else was talking about them without ever really knowing what they were about basically but 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 did you uh did you just go to them did they come to you i um i went to them uh because when i finished writing violence girl i finished you know posting my last blog entry uh i asked my readers what who do you suggest what do you suggest i do this with this and um one of the suggestions was you know approach feral house and i sent them i think i sent them 10 pages and they wrote back to me and Adam, um, who is now passed away, but he right. he was the publisher. Uh, he was in charge of Feral House. And he wrote to me and he said, Alice Bag, I met you outside the whiskey many years ago. I would love to put out your book. And, you know, he had he had been involved in punk and he had a, he was very supportive of me. So that's, that's why I went with him really just because he was immediately like, yes, I want to do this. And yes, you know, it's like, basically he asked me to rewrite the intro. And, you know, aside from that, like he's, we sent it off to an editor who um, was, you know, really good and, and did not ask me to do any huge changes. So I feel like it was a, really positive experience well good good and feral house of course does live on yeah feral house and, lives on um, and they i mean i don't i i don't know their entire collection i know that um adam is not someone to shy or wasn't someone that would shy away from controversy and in fact i think he kind of enjoyed like you know just kind of poking to oh, see yeah. like if he could get a rise out of people so i think uh, i think he wanted to you know, let every, let everything come to the surface and see what happened. I mean, I'm I'm going to. Uh, they they recently put up put out a book called Hit Girls, which uh, I think is really cool. I think. Oh my God! What if it's not on Feral? I think it's on Feral House. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. No. I. I mean, at the very least, yeah, he did know how to push buttons yeah. and put out a lot of stuff that nobody else would, would publish. Yeah. And make enough money off of it, he could put out more and more. Of it. Well, I think he made a, you know, like everything else, you make your money off of certain, you know, certain writers or certain um, certain musicians or certain artists or whatever it is, and and you, you know the others are like in there because you just love them and want to encourage them. But sometimes, not everyone on a label or in a on a on a publishing label on a record label or uh, in a in a gallery is is making money but it, it, oh that much we that know. much we know oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah but, but speaking of not making money yeah. another thing that's just kind of hammered through loud and clear in violence girl is you're one of the few people I've known in any of the punk scene who grew up genuinely poor. Yeah. Ironically, two of the Green Day guys are another, are two more in Rodeo. But you know, you you mentioned you had a tiny little house in the the barrio, the what would be considered the ghetto of or in East LA, and there was not a lot of money to be had. And most people coming into punk, maybe they couldn't all go home again if they had to, but 
they came from at least lower middle class. And sadly, there weren't a lot of punks of color compared to who came into the garage rock outburst in the 60s, let alone, you know, rhythm and blues being such an important part of the birth of rock and roll. It was black music, too. It was black music at the beginning. But punk, less so. But mainly it was just, it, it was, a, you know, as you as you frame it too, it was a class thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there were, a, actually, there were more people of color than we realize. I always think that because so many of us took on, like, our band name as our last name in the style of the Ramones, that we sometimes don't get the Latino last names or, you know, like, I was talking to Dave Drive one day who was uh, in the controllers in the controllers yes in the controller that doesn't sound familiar for a controller okay. the gears i'm sorry he was in the gears <laughs> and you talk about east la very early and of course even in that area you know la was and i suppose in ways still is quite the segregated city Maybe not as bad as Bakersfield is to this day, but, um, you know, you mentioned about East L.A. swimming pools. Mm. They had white days and they had Mexican days. Yeah, there was a, um, oh, God, I don't remember the name of the pool now. It's in my book. I wrote it somewhere, but I forget. It's not coming to my to mind right now, but it was near my house. And my mom would just tell me, we can't go swimming today another time. You know, it was... Um, it was something that was for a very short time when I was very young. Uh, and that later on, you know, I just, it went right. away. But yes, that right. was still, that was still happening. Yeah. But yes, I, I wanted to tell you really quickly that one day I was hanging out in, a, in uh, this bar and Dave Drive was talking to me from the gears and he, right. uh, he said something to me and he, and I said, oh, wait, are you Mexican? And he said, yes. And uh, I said, I didn't know you were Mexican because, you know, gear, like Dave Drive. Drive doesn't sound Latino. And uh, then he told me his real name. I don't remember what it was, but it was something, you know, that, right. <laughs> that you'd associate. Right. I mean, then there was the plugs who... Uh, Tito was very, very upfront. I mean, yeah. bass guy was white. Drummer Chalo, of course, was a Tito as well. And they ended their set with a punked out version of La Bamba. I know. I think that was awesome. Um, Tito was from Chihuahua, which is where my father's from. So I'm especially uh -huh. thrilled with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I really liked about them and that like the bags, they were kind of a sister band of ours where we'd try to play together when we yeah. could and stuff and um, i forgot to mention that in the intro dead kennedys and bags just kept seeking each other out and crashing on each other's floors and this that and the other yeah i remember I like one of the first times school. that we went to san francisco you took us on a tour and we would just drive around and you were like telling us everything like the whole story of the city i don't know if you remember that but that was who was driving i don't think i had a car no yet. you weren't driving you were you weren't driving. You were you were the tour guide. <laughs> Somebody else right, was driving. Right. Maybe it was uh maybe it was Chi Chi. Did Chi Chi have a car? No, none of us none of us had Ray had a car, but he wouldn't have taken anybody cruising yeah, like that. But, so uh, it was great. It was I have really warm feelings about that. That was really sweet. <laughs> yeah. 
another time I did have a car and the Cheetah Crow motherfuckers came and played a place called The Farm opening for BGK. They were Italian and they were out of their goddamn minds, especially the singer. So it was like, yep, reputation is lived up to. These are the germs of Europe. Oh, wow. And so then I need to take them out for food later to this amazing Mexican place that stayed open late that is now gone, sadly, called La Rondaya. And uh, to get there from the farm up and over those hills on Dolores Street and then uh, even even hit the, you know, the little platforms. I knew I could ski jump a car off of that. You know, it was my mom's old Dodge Coronet that was much bigger than most cars I knew. And my sister called it the Lange Barge before she passed it on to me. And I hear it like, yellow, yellow, slow down. You drive like you're in Italy. <laughs> If you know anything about driving in Italy, you'll know why they said that. Yeah, I, I've been to Italy. I do in Rome and not hit each other <laughs> or me. They're not the worst drivers in the world. They're the best drivers in the world. You know, 40 miles an hour down an alley, everybody jumps out of the way. Nobody gets hit. Amazing stuff. Anyway, um, you know, part of what makes the book so well written is you have so many really sharp memory of very early childhood and not a lot of us do. I do, but then even people I grew up with and stuff, and I noticed this even late 70s, early 80s, um, they had no tangible personal memories of Vietnam, and the protests were raging right across the street from our elementary school, and the junior high was just a couple blocks down and stuff. Tear gas sometimes, no memory of that. No, and, and not, not even a memory of Watergate. We were teenagers. That was the best reality show on the history of television, when I, I had imitations of at least three of those senators, maybe more. But anyway, but they don't remember this stuff. If I hum a TV commercial theme, they remember it. <laughs> but you do remember this stuff. You're so weird. How can you remember stuff that happened when you were two or we were three? Three. Well, we moved when I was four. So there were all these memories of the old house. Yeah. They're saved forever. And beyond, and people telling me, oh, you remember more of my own childhood than I do. Well, one of the things that helped me remember is that when I started writing, I actually had, uh, my mom had passed away, and I had a bunch of her things in plastic tubs. And instead of like being, we had just moved, so instead of them being in a garage or something, they were in the living room. So, and I had just draped like some cloth over them and then set a, a lamp on top of them or something, you know, just made <laughs> improvised side tables out of the plastic tubs. But then I'd open it up and it was just like a treasure trove of like, you know, I, I found like my mom's rent receipts. She had kept rent receipts her entire life and <laughs> um, just photos, clippings of you know, every, you know, pretty much every show that I played, any reviews or anything like that, she had kept. Uh, I took photography classes in school and she would pick up like my bad prints that I'd print and I'd throw in the trash. She would dig them out of the trash. So there were like photos from, you know, from the punk scene that I thought like, oh, no, I can't right. hand this in as a photo for my class because it's not you know, it's underdeveloped or overdeveloped or something was wrong with it. So she kept it all, which made it really easy to um, to remember. Yeah. In the book, your childhood memories are really, really sharp. And that is not and they go back a long way. And that is not as common among our friends and peers as you might guess. 
mean, mine go back really far too, but all kinds of people would tell me, even when we were in our early 20s, I grew up with, oh, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. You remember more of my own childhood than I do. And they don't have any tangible memories of Vietnam. And we were yeah. all arguing over that in fourth grade and, uh, you know, in 69 or earlier. And, um, and then uh, Watergate, we're teenagers, best reality show <laughs> in the history of television. And Nixon actually went down. It was awesome when they had invitations of Senator Sam and Senator Ehrman Talmadge and several others. And that, that was that was great fun. They don't remember that either. And we were 16. Well, what do they remember? Besides, oh, those high school memories of which how many good ones do you have? Not many. But not many. I mean, I remember my childhood because my yeah. father actually took a lot of pictures and my mom didn't throw anything away. She was a depression baby, so she just thought like, let's just put that away or fix it, you know, but she didn't throw anything away. Um, so that was easy in that way. But also, like, I do remember certain, like, touchstones, like the Billie Jean King and Bobby Rigg Battle of the Sexes, because I was right. like, <laughs> that right. was so exciting. Yeah, well, also, you also said when technical problems may or may not have begun that you, when your mother died, you got all her belongings and there were crates and crates yeah. of old pictures and things. And she basically saved yeah, she everything. She did. I would, like, I would throw stuff away and she'd take it out of the trash and stash it and save it. And, like, she, she's also a very creative person. So she would, like, you know, get like different colors of construction paper and glue the photos in, like make collages and stuff. And she, I hadn't seen them. Uh, I didn't see them until she passed away. And then I saw oh, she made all these collages of like st stuff to do with the bags, which was really, really sweet. How many of those bags pictures are in your book? Well, I had a limit as to how many, like, I mean, photos in general, there was like, let's use this many photos. I actually... I felt like I was, um, I had more fun doing the blog because I could put up as many as I wanted. So uh, it was a lot more visual. Plus I could use color and color was more expensive. And the photos, of course, if you needed to ask for rights, they were more expensive too. But, you know, I was inspired by comic books. So I really, I really wanted Violence Girl yeah. to be a comic yeah. book originally. Yeah, I mean, both my parents were depression kids, yeah. too. As my mother reiterated again the last time I was back in Boulder, we made our own yeah. fun. That sounds exactly like what you were doing, family and <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, and you don't throw anything away. You fix everything. I mean, when people think about punk, they always say like, oh, that was DIY. And it's like, well, you know what? DIY was invented by poor people, not punks. Exactly. I mean, back to the plugs for a second. Um, another thing that was really cool about them, they got, I think, the first L.A. punk underground album out yeah. before even the germ. And the way they were able to do it, they recorded it live and the li and the, it was a benefit to raise money to put it out as a record. And there may have even been another benefit or two just to help the plugs get their record out. It was a community support thing. You know, there's somebody in, in our scene is going to get a whole LP out and, you know, we want to help support this. And then maybe now as they would call it crowdfund yeah. and go from there. Yeah, no, no. I feel like Kickstarter before Kickstarter, right? It was like just like people being invested in like helping the, the I think we were all invested in helping the scene grow. 
right? Like we wanted to support each other. We wanted to, we, I mean, I remember like being very concerned, like let's not mess up this club because then we won't have some place to play. And I know that I especially could get out of hand and my, like the people that came to see the bags sometimes got out of hand. And that that's true for the germs too. And that's probably true for you too. You know, you always wanted to like, well, it's true for San Francisco in general, although I guess we drew a little bit wilder crowd than <laughs> some, you know, negative trend yeah. did too. And, uh, but then a negative trend eventually evaporated, sadly, but we kept going. And then the mayor campaign drew more people, including jocks and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, I, I think what you saw at your shows in L.A. that the germs was more across the board at the Mabuhe and at the Deaf Club. That stuff was always going on, just wild pogoing people down, bouncing off each other and uh, things like that. And, um, and, and very physical performers too. I mean, I was by no means the first yeah. of those. I mean, I mean, of course, long before us was Iggy and then we saw Stiff Baders and then Roz Rizabek, the first singer negative trend was really, really wild on stage and hurt his knees so bad. He left the band, unfortunately. And then they got Michael Waters, but anyway, yeah, it was definitely breakdown between the traditional audience and performer this wasn't arena rock it wasn't even an uptight record company club you know everybody was yeah and i I mean it it also like we had very like like stages that were like a foot high or something right so like you could easily be on the stage one moment and in the audience the next and that was like a very common thing to do right right? jump off and go into the audience the audience to jump up on the stage um so I mean, there the that line was definitely blurred. And you also, I mean, I remember like being at Germs concerts where I felt, especially very early Germs concerts when I was tight with with um, Bobby Pin, uh, where I felt like, you know, like we're making this show exciting by like pulling and screaming and like making a big deal. We're making we're making um, the Germs feel appreciated, but also we're having more fun because we're like expressing ourselves. So I feel like we were all fully invested in whether we were like good audience members or we were on the stage. And was there the same peer pressure in those days that there was in San Francisco, 77, 78, 79, where no two bands calling themselves punk can sound alike? I don't think that, I don't think that existed. Instead of all bands must sound the same, (laughs) like now, you know, everybody had to sound different and the people in the other bands were often your roommates or whatever, you know, they would tell you immediately if you're kind of getting dull or you're not that interesting, not a problem in Dead Kennedys, but with some other bands, it was done in an encouraging way. Of course, most of the audience was the people yeah. in the other bands. Yeah. Sound familiar? So uh, you you had to bring something new to the table because when there was finally another punk band, and there were instead of three, there were four or five or six. Or we debuted almost to the week that the Nuns and the Sleepers broke up wow. for the first time. So there was a void there in UXA too. There was a void there. So people were hungry, but um, yeah, it was like, okay, excite us. We want to see what, and, and people already kind of knew who I was because I was the person in the crowd who was doing the wildest pogoing and this, <laughs> that, and the other. 
and stuff. And Tony Dill even like called me out on the stage saying I was getting out of hand. Nothing like what we saw later, but uh, yeah, I was like, oh God, Eric's got a band. Let's see what <laughs> this is. And sure enough, oh my God, the band is good and they can actually play and they're funny. So uh, yeah, it, it snowballed pretty fast. Although I have fast. to say that and, learning, uh, knowing how to play is not necessarily how I like how I define a good band. A lot well, no, of times it's just no. like, what do they have to say? And like, how creative are they in saying yeah. it? Like, I, I consider that a hindrance <laughs> yeah. at first because, you know, Ray and Klaus are 10 years older than me. And they're like, no, no, you can't do it that way. Music says, theory says do it this way. We've been playing for this long. You don't know anything. Yeah, but I'm writing the yeah. songs and you're not. Yeah. So what are we going to do? It also meant that because it violates music theory, the chorus to California Uberalis took a month wow. for the other guys to figure out what we can get it right. Once they got it, they felt it, then it was obvious what it was. But apparently it violates music That's theory. That's cool. Which I tend to do to this day. It's all done in my head. I can't play nothing. But uh, back to younger Alicia Armendariz, although you switched to Alice well, pretty Well, I was, uh, my, my name Alicia? was switched for me when I was in school. I think it was in second grade that my teacher just said, oh, like, good God. Alicia, your English name is Alice. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I think. So I just, <laughs> you know. I just went by Alice. Also, like people always used to call me Alicia. And I thought like, that's not my name at all. That's neither like, that's not the English version of Alicia. And it's not, it's not, my name's Alicia. And, you know, it, it just became Alice. And I just like went with it. Um, and then when I got in the bags, it became Alice bag. And then I tried to get away from it for a little bit, but it just kept coming back. Just, I mean, I don't know if, if you've experienced this jello, but we try and move away from like, you know, from music and it always comes back. It's like, you can't get away from me. I'm part of who you are. Yeah. But I, I never tried and I never wanted to. I branched out to, yeah. into other things, but you know, I have no shame whatsoever about dead Kennedys or the music and all that good stuff. I mean, I'm proud of that. Not necessarily what's been done to it in recent years. Yeah, I mean, that it, it's a major, major part of me. I'll put a little DK logo scratch if I sign, you know, one of the alternative tentacles versions of Dead Kennedys from back in the day or something that has nothing to do with Dead Kennedys. It's just kind of a little mark of the little one of my little mark of the beast. I never carved it into my forehead as a DK logo X and That's probably good. never will. And I hope nobody else ever Thank does either. But um, yeah, no, it, it, it's uh, it's something definitely to be proud of, and I'm sure you're very proud of your current. I music am, and now. I'm also I, I'm also proud of my um, the the whole trajectory, right? And my and everything I've done. It's just that, like for the first, I'd say probably the first twenty years after the bags, like people would show up at concerts, and no matter what band I was in, they'd say, "Play Survive," <laughs> and I was just like so sick of it. Do you play any bag songs? Yeah, we usually play at least Babylonian Gorgon. Uh, that That's at the very least we'll play that song because that one, right. I feel very connected to it. Um, Craig Lee wrote that song for me because right. somebody said that I was, that I looked like a Babylonian Gorgon on stage. And so he wrote that song for me. And uh, so I feel, you know, that's my theme song. <laughs> so it's not quite as poetic on his part as I thought it was. <laughs> no, somebody, a reviewer called me that. 
I think part of the reason people yell for survive is not just because it's the A side of your one release from back in the day that's come out here and there since the Danger House single Babylon Go Millennium Gorgon is the B side, yeah. of course. But survive is lyrically very similar to the survivor and survival lyrics that are still a major part of your work. That's interesting. It's almost like the opening salvo, the opening anthem. That's very, very interesting that you say that. I feel like I'm kind of, um, I feel like Survive is like the first song that I tried to write lyrics to. No, I mean, probably it's probably not the first one, but it's the first one that, and the only one that we recorded with the bags that actually had lyrics that I've written. So I was like, super self-conscious and I also realized that I was using some words incorrectly and that they had a different connotation in English than they do in Spanish for example commodity like commodity I thought it meant like in Spanish uh, comodidad which means like comfort and so it's completely <laughs> different uh, so later on you know well, you could <laughs> change a word here and yeah. there or, or use the spanish word you know use both you do do use both and some of your yeah, lyrics now. i do and i you as switch. i you know like i just decided it's okay to mix stuff up and it's also okay to write a song completely in spanish and i mean even when i was in the bags we do like some covers in Spanish. I remember doing Popotitos, which is Boney Maroney in Spanish. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, occasionally we throw in some Spanish, but I feel like as I've gotten older, I've felt I've, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with doing that and with not feeling like, oh, is my, is my audience going to be able to come on this journey with me? You know, I use a lot of Spanish in the book too. And uh, I had to, right, I had to right. consider like, do I need to translate this? And I was like, I don't think I do. I think I'm I mean, just going to throw it, it out there. I a lot of it do, because some of it is slang. It's barrio slang, yeah, too. Yeah. But maybe on the next album, if you really want to go that far, you could record all the vocals in both English and Spanish and have two mixes. Yeah, I like you that. You can get I... the Espanol album or the Inglés album, and on the CD, you can get both. That sounds great. I actually download. started doing a little bit of that, like... After um, this last record, Sister Dynamite, I did a version of a song that is on my previous record, Blueprint. It's The song's called Turn It Up on Blueprint, and then it's in Spanish on Sister Dynamite, and it's called Subele. And then um, when I was in Mexico, I did like, a, like three of the songs on Sister Dynamite. I translated them into Spanish, and I went into the studio with... Uh, some of my Mexican musician friends and we did Spanish versions of the songs. It was really cool. And that, unfortunately, we didn't press some, but we did like release them on, I think they're on Spotify or what, wherever in the red releases, there are streamable stuff. Right, right, right. Yeah, you just came back from living in uh, Mexico de Efe, yes. Mexico City, yeah. and did not come back to L.A., but to Arizona. Yeah. Um, what prompted the move to Mexico and what prompted the move back? Well, the move to to Ciudad de Mexico was because um, during the pandemic, my one of my cousins passed away and it was a cousin that I had been very close to and had been inviting me to go and spend time with her for a really long time. And I kept saying, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to come and spend an, ex you know, extended period of time here with you. 
And uh, her mother, my my aunt, Josefina, uh, was 90, 99 years old, 98, I think, when I, when I got the call from her. And uh, she was, I guess, just dealing with the death of her daughter and said to me, if you're ever going to spend time with me, you better come now because I'm 98 years old, uh, right? And it's like, yeah. So uh, she made it to her 99th birthday. She did succumb to COVID eventually, but not before I got like a year of like being able to hang out with her, listen to her stories and just really, I mean, I, I cherish all the time that I got to spend with her. So she was the main reason that we decided to just like leave everything and go to Mexico and try a different way of life. And I think I I think we really like both Greg and I. Uh, I moved with my husband, and I think we both wanted to to stay, but we also felt like we had a connection to our kids are in the United States, and uh, and all our friends are here. So we we're kind of torn. I think I I. Even right now, as I'm telling you about this, I feel like we've had a bunch of conversations about like, we have a lease here in Arizona. How long are we going to be here? Are we going, where are we going to go? Are we going to go to LA or are we going to go to Mexico City again? So that's all, I don't know. It depends on uh-huh. what happens in our lives and which way yeah. the wind blows yeah. us. Did you record any of her stories? I didn't record them. No, I wish I had. I wish I thought of it. I think I was just so like in the moment, right? Like just, I mean, I, I, we used to make um, videos for uh, on YouTube and I think she's in a couple of them, but just briefly, she's not like, she's, she wasn't like super into technology, um, but but she was like one of those people that was very alert and had like, like her brain was, you know, working all the way until the end. So she, you know, yeah. crack jokes and do tequila shots with you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, my, my father started recording the ancestors one generation above. And I don't think he started before my grandparents were gone, but he got some aunts and uncles and other people. So then, uh, you know, it passed on to me and I got 12 hours of him with the story of his life and then have another 12 hours of my mother now too, said she wasn't very interesting. And then obviously I'm a pipsqueak compared to what those people accomplished from point A to point Z. I ain't nothing compared to them, not as bright either. But, um, you know, but that, but that stuff is so important because our culture does not usually preserve the wisdom of the ancestors. Yeah. And what you've got in these stories and the stories of your aunt is um, how real people live and not how it was in movies with movie stars, not how celebrities lived or whatever, but how real people who don't get books or movies or thing about them actually lived. I mean, lots of depression stories from both parents too. Oh, that's great. That's great that you got those stories. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And then we lost my dad. I had to listen to all 12 hours and then fill in the mountain climbing stuff because we didn't get to that before he died. And he was a not just a social work pioneer and uh, in his own way, part of the civil rights movement, which we will get to in a second. But because um, it, it connects with um, the East L.A. riot you saw, basically. But um, anyway, uh, but but and as well as a rock climbing pioneer. And so, uh, you know, it's uh, all kinds of stuff yeah. for that. I got part of the climbing, but not all of it. 
But um, anyway, so definitely, I'm sure you have other ancestors or even uh, husband, kids, whatever. You know, at some point, even though you've blogged and you've written Violence Girl and another book about just when the time you spent in Nicaragua, mm-hmm. right around the Sandinista Revolution and stuff, there's a lot more to you that you could just get down on tape so somebody has it. <laughs> Especially the kids. If anybody wants Let it. Them interview. <laughs> You're assuming What's that there's that? interest in that. If you want something to help you fall asleep. <laughs> well, that was my mother's attitude yeah. too, but my God, no way. Yeah. All kinds of wild stories and stuff. Really? So, um, That's great. She had draft dodgers working in her office and in her library loan at the University of Colorado. And, you know, she, you know, there was, it was a lot of, and one, one of whom was one of our sitters too. And he turned me on to Alice Cooper <laughs> and Frank Zappa. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, another, another thing, what created you, how much did being raised Catholic really form you, even in your late teens, early twenties, negatively, positively, either way? You know, most people are raised Catholic and never quite leave. Sometimes even if they're doing all kinds of transgressions in their earlier music, they're starting to go back to it later. Yeah, I think uh, my parents were, my mother um, really did the whole Catholic thing with going to church and getting us to go to church. But I never felt like there was any like deep Catholicism in the home, really. I think my mom was more about like folk medicine and like uh, going and getting like oils and candles. And like, it was almost more like folk medicine and folk religion um, that she was into. And my father was kind of an atheist, but I really had some intense Catholic feelings. Like I really thought like, maybe I'll be a nun someday. (laughs) And then at a certain point, like I remember just thinking like, wait, like what is this whole idea about like, you know, reading, reading uh, the, you know, some of the apostles who are really sexist and talk about how God is uh, like, man is a reflection of God, just as woman is a reflection of man. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And, you know, then I started looking. How old were you when this This annoyed the hell out of you? This was probably high school. uh, High school. And I I had, we had religion class because I went to a Catholic high school. So we had religion class. And so I would write, there was this nun named Sister Angela who had us write journals and whatever we wanted to question about our religious studies, we would write in our journal. And I'm like, you know, I was questioning everything. Like, wait, how is it that if God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent how is it that like somebody like judas can be saddled with the burden of like oh like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be the bad guy forever but like why did god make him a bad guy (laughs) because i was just asking all these like you know with questions that seemed obvious to me and then and then in college i read mary daly's god the father and that was just another thing that just you know put me over the edge because it's all about like how disconnected um, this male representation of God uh, is for women. You know, we like we are basically separated from being able to identify with the divine. So that bothered me tremendously because, as I said, I thought maybe someday I might want to be a nun or do you know go into religion somehow. I just went into like figuring out ways in which it was wrong instead. I mean, 
It's like the Mormons. When is a cult no longer a cult? Even though there's cult practices, it was it's become when it becomes such a huge religion that it's not looked at that way. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I feel like I'm not against religion. I think if, you know, if it's doing good in your life and it enriches your life and it, you know, like there's a lot of things that are cool about it. Like I love ritual. I love being able to be around other people and sharing ritual with others. I do believe in like that, that when we get together and we focus on something and channel our intention, that we can change outcomes. So the, all that kind of stuff I still believe in, but I also feel like, you know, when you rely on leaders, like religious leaders and, you know, these structures that are flawed, um, people can really be like steered down the wrong path. I mean, but I believe that about not only religion, I believe that about politics as well. And, you know, oh, yeah. education, all kinds of stuff. I just feel like we constantly have to be on our toes and we constantly have to be right. questioning. And, you know, as you said about language and how it's constantly evolving, it's constantly, hopefully, reflecting our our changing culture and our, our changing values. Like religion has to be like that too. Like you can't just, you know, not question religion because it's been the same for like, you know, thousands of years. In fact, that's why you should right. question it. Right. Or, well, our founding fathers didn't put this in the Constitution. And yes, they were slave owners when only male property owners could vote. Right. But nevertheless, we must adhere to the founding fathers and women can't control their bodies anymore. Right. right. Exactly. But yeah, that we got to move forward. Thing. But I mean, the only way that happens, you know, and this, this goes back to like the fact that I was a teacher for a long time. Um, one of the things that was really gratifying about it was like really forcing my kids to think for themselves and to question everything and to question me and question what they were learning. Um, and like, hopefully, you know, like making them that way forever. <laughs> like, I hope that nobody ever shuts them down and makes them just memorize shit from a textbook. Because like my proudest moments are when like, you know, like kids in my class have just like, you know, like I remember being in my, my fifth grade class and one of my students just looked at me and he's like, wait, did the United States just jack Mexico? Like, did they just jack Texas? And like, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, essentially. Um, so, or, you know, like my, my little kids, yes, I took them to McDonald's for happy meals. And, you know, like, what can I say? I, I was, we were going through the drive-thru and the woman came on the speaker and asked like, do you want a girl toy or a boy toy? And my, my littlest, you know, my five-year-old got up like, came up to the window and said, there's no such thing. And I was so proud. Like, those are my proudest <laughs> moments. Like, yes. That's great. Yes, question authority. That's amazing. <laughs> what did you do when, if anything, you know, if they began questioning you or Greg as parents? I I, I want them to question me, um, and, but I don't mind questioning as long as it is, like, you know, reasonable and not, like, just, like, fuck you, I don't have to do what you say, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Right, I don't think right, my, my right. um I have two stepdaughters and one, the youngest is my own. And I think the most rebellious one was, you know, the one that's mine because she, I, my, the, the, <laughs> the stepdaughters were always like, we just always got along great because I was the, I was the, the nice stepmom <laughs> who didn't ever have uh, to do the heavy, 
the heavy lifting. Like right. their real mom did right. all the real, like the tough work and kudos to her because she did a great job. But my own daughter was kind of rebellious. And, uh, but she was also, she also knew that I was not someone to fuck with. <laughs> like, I think, and also I think my students knew that. Like, it's like, I'll, I'll go along with it so far. And then it's like, hell no, my class or this is my house. <laughs> Popular teacher with students? I, I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, I would get love letters every day. When I was a teacher, oh. I got love letters every day. I'd go home and I, I miss that so much. Every day I'd go home and I had like all these little handmade cards. Like, I miss wow. having buddies. Because you. <laughs> Your, your Wikipedia page said, oh, she's an English teacher. What? And then in your book, you say, no, you were teaching kindergarten. Yeah. But it was to second English second language yes. students. So I guess you were an English teacher, but you weren't like a high school English no, teacher, I, like I, I wrongly concluded. No, no, no. I, I taught um, all elementary grades. My credential is multiple subjects instruction, so I can teach, you know, K through or pre-K through 12 and adult as well. So I also taught at Occidental College like during pandemic yeah. and that was something exciting. <laughs> ah, what subject? Uh, I taught a class that I called Access to Praxis, which was Access is in guitars and uh, Praxis is in getting shit done. <laughs> like, uh, so, oh, so it was all about the power of music and uh, how it can really change society and by changing society you you know that you change laws you change you you know it's a start like it all starts with somebody singing a song and then hearing a lyric and connecting to it you know and you start changing how people think maybe having a conversation about it and then oh yeah our music is powerful did your daughters have barbie dolls yes my my daughters um had barbie dolls if they wanted them they had my oldest daughter had, or my youngest daughter had, um, she went through a Bratz doll thing for a little bit, but my daughter played with them in a weird way. Like my, my youngest, like would, you know, not only dye their hair, but she would tie them to things, all kinds of strange things to them. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it wasn't like the whole, like, you know, Barbie and Ken thing that never really existed right. in our in our home. Yeah, because you, you write in your book that you had Barbie dolls. Yes, but I did. And I was like, Alice? Barbie dolls? Yes. I, I used to stick them between my legs, masturbate with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I think you're not the only woman I know who did that, <laughs> as well as get caught in her bedroom simulating her Barbies engaging in various sex acts. Yeah. That's that's what you do with Barbie. But, uh, I wonder and, why and, that's and not in you, the movie, huh? <laughs> <laughs> i haven't seen the movie i don't know if i will or not um you know i'll give it about a beat yeah there's a major acid head friend of ours billy bill miller who goes way back in the 60s psychedelic scene he wasn't a 13th floor elevators he was in cold sun and then later in rocky erickson and the aliens he was the guy who played the electric auto harp with a butter knife just oh, staring awesome. at people in the audience and stuff and uh hopefully you can find a way to get him focused enough to do renegade roundtable with billy it'll be fascinating he's obsessed with that movie now. really he obsessed wants Anne marie to go take him again so he can see it again all these intellectual things he's drawing out of it as only he would and whatnot so well, uh 
We shall see. Anything that makes um, people think and, and have conversations is a good thing, right? Like, <laughs> Especially when the acid trips never quite ended. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, you also, even as a kid, you knew about Lucha Libre, oh, yeah. too. Yeah, my, my dad was a fan. So we used to watch Lucha Libre since I was little from, like, Mexico. Um, Arena Coliseo and, like... Um, I, th I think Arena Mexico too. I don't know. Different arenas in Mexico would have uh, wrestling. So we used to watch it. I still remember like black and white TV, like wrestling bouts. And then later on, it got um, we got into like the American wrestling with like Tony, uh, named Freddie Blassie. And um, oh yeah, we, they, you, you'd have touring luchadores who came from Mexico and other places too, you know. It was just, it was so much fun. I have really fond memories of wrestling matches. It's like something really wholesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a scene for a while up here revolving around an event called Incredibly Strange Wrestling. Not the one that Johnny Legend started. The name got reused and Audra launched Incredibly Strange Wrestling and there were seen people as the, as the wrestlers and then every once in a while she'd bring in a Lucha Libre group to close the event. And one in particular, the first one I ever saw, it wasn't like the slow throw everybody on the ground, on the mat, and then the other person jumps off, whatever. It was fast and they were flying, including on and off the floor. They were acrobats. Yeah, yeah. They were great, big, giant acrobats. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, like uh, we went quite a few times to see wrestling during the time I was in Mexico. Actually, like took Belinda Carlisle and, and her husband for the first uh, for their first visit. And I think she's addicted now. <laughs> I think she takes all her all her friends who end up going to visit her to the uh, to Arena Mexico. But uh, they would like, you know, like stand on their on their heads and then come down and, you know, do a somersault and lay on top of someone else or land on top of someone else. And then we got to see Kemonito, um, who is like a blue monkey. Uh, they have like, you know, little people wrestling as well. And Kemonito uh, <laughs> is just like everybody's favorite. And he has his own ballad. He has a ballad of Kemonito. And everybody like sells his t-shirts and is like, he's, he's like a favorite, a favorite of mine for now sure. Now I know what to do if I go to Mexico again at some point, hopefully. I've never been to uh, Ciudad Mexi Mexico at all. Well, next time, hopefully Mexico if we're there been. again, Jello, we can take you to see wrestling. It'll oh, be wow. really fun. Well, thank you. Yeah. That would, that would be awesome. Yeah. That would rule. And in addition to, uh, you know, that part of your identity gleaned from black and white TV <laughs> and those fabulous men in tights and masks and possibly uh, baseball stuffed in plastic cups in their crotch, <laughs> which you never know. Um, you alluded earlier to one of your formative experiences as a Chicana and that identity was actually witnessing once some of the police riots. Yeah that went down in East LA, which is practically unknown, even among people who actually have some idea of what happened in Chicago 68 or some of the other ones, even Seattle 99 is kind of forgotten now. But East LA, there wasn't just one riot, there was a bunch of them. And even my father was calling them police riots. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's essentially what they are. I think that's correct, because I think it's the police that like, 
you know, provokes the riot part. The people are marching in protest. And and this is still true, right? Like, so sad. People march oh, and protest. Yes, thank. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yes, thank. and uh, they start oh, getting yeah. aggressive and beating on innocent people or spraying them. You know, they, they, they gassed a bunch of people. This is a, this, the, the one you're talking about. And I talk about in my book and I also like wrote a song, um, white justice that's on the blueprint album is about the Chicano moratorium, which happened in 1970, which was a protest against the overwhelmingly like, um, the, the much, much disproportionate number of Chicanos that were being drafted and sent to the front lines and coming back dead because they were sent to the front lines. So this was a protest against that. And probably a lot for a lot of people, just a protest against the Vietnam war in general. But, um, but you know, my, my father and my sister and my mom, we all went, we were like standing there when somebody, and I, my memory, you know, I don't think I'd write this in the book, but I think it was like somebody from the police because the police, the policemen, there were policemen on either side of the street. There were all these squad cars and we were standing like right at the corner, right at the intersection, watching the marchers. We weren't actually marching ourselves when we saw somebody from where the police were standing throw a bottle into the marchers. And then they ran through the through the crowd. And I thought, like, why aren't the police chasing after this guy? You know, uh, but my father just said, that's it. You guys are getting in the car. We're leaving. And then by the time we got home and we lived about like maybe 10 minutes away, by the time we got home, um, it was it was on television. Like you could see that, like there was all this stuff going on. Yeah. People were like being gassed, uh, you know, riot police were marching right. in. And it was just, you know. Yeah, the, the moratorium was nationwide. It was a nationwide day of the biggest mass protests people could come up with against the Vietnam War. Yeah. And it may have been the biggest one nationwide up to that time because it scared the living daylights out of Nixon, apparently. And that was when he decided to get more hardcore against protesters and COINTELPRO had to already be going on, but um, there's even a, there's even a, a long long form uh, TV series about Martha Mitchell with Sean Penn as John Mitchell, which must be seen to be believed. He's so good. Oh, really? And bringing up all these borderline PTSD memories from my own youth about John Mitchell and Nixon, and I had no idea how deeply Mitchell was involved in COINTELPRO and getting people killed and this, that, and the other, but it's it's detailed in there, and I think that was where kind of made it clear the moratorium and then the Pentagon Papers, we've got to get this guy Ellsberg forming the plumbers to go burglarize the Kydra's office. Oh, now John's got his little secrets police squad. Let's go break into Democratic... Party headquarters, which back then outraged people and stuff. And, you know, and, and the media was not all owned by larger corporations. So you'd get the bloody Vietnam War footage, the hoses and the dogs on the African-Americans in Selma. I saw that yeah. on TV as a child. And my mother said, I just can't understand why anyone would hate somebody else because of the color of their skin. Her scolding voice, I knew very well, but that was like, 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And so I was very anti-racist, even in white little boulder from that point onward because of that. And uh, but East L.A. didn't really get on the national news reports. But my father was going back in and out of uh, L.A. and East L.A. and the entire Western United States. He called it continuing education. And then because he was a psychiatric social worker. And I asked him on table, what does that mean? What were you really doing for WICHE, Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education? Because that's not the only thing they did. My mom worked in their library before my sister was born, whatever. Anyway, um, I said, no, my, my job was to take different kinds of people and teach them how to teach, including social work. And that took him to ghettos in San Francisco as well. It took him to Indian reservations and some folks in Seattle. He had a lot of interesting friends, very few of which I ever got to meet, unfortunately. A little bit compartmentalized, plus I was all angry all the time then, especially at my family. But uh, anyway, but one who used to come to the house from time to time from L.A., Armando Morales, who I think was later taught at UCLA or something, he had a whole book on the police riots called... uh, Ando Sangrando, I Am Bleeding. Mm-hmm. And it is a gut-wrenching book. I mean, I'd already known, and you allude to it a little bit, that the moratorium protest was after the East L.A. police riot, where the journalist reporting on it and questioning the police in Los Angeles Times, Ruben Salazar, was murdered in broad daylight in front of all kinds of witnesses by the LAPD. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, he was in a bar having a quick drink and stuff and they approached the bar and fired a tear gas canister into the side of his head yeah, the silver dollar yep. there is a picture in here which i could find it half quick enough it's going to be shown well there's this one for one thing which was then included on the insert to dead kennedy's police truck macho single macho join the lapd oh and then the, the, and oh i kept the caption God. a frightening communication Jesus. gap and stuff. And then there's little kids with brown berets oh, on yeah. in the next picture. But somewhere in here, if I can find it fast enough, is where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, yes. Right up oh, there yeah. Yeah. is a cop right about to walk in to the bar where Ruben Salazar was assassinated. Yeah. And that one, to me, I was just so outraged, even after Chicago, and had realized the LAPD just shoot, you know, they were hair trigger and killed another innocent person, a deaf person who didn't understand they wanted his ID, and he reached for it, and they said, oh, it was a gun. They blew him oh away my God. on a freeway overpass. And he was walking home from his brother's place and stuff. Claude Auten was his name. I still remember that. It was just like, you know... Be, be having a fair amount of bullying through going through that myself when I, you know, really bad bullying like that just, you know, yeah. struck really raw nerves, just like with you, to the point where the murder of Ruben Salazar is almost up there in terms of still, in spite of the band, t- calling my band Dead Kennedys, the Kennedy assassinations, Martin Luther King. And Ruben Salazar, among others, that just tears me yeah. up. Every time I think about it, it, fucking tears me the fuck up. You know, you know, fighting a little bit of tears now because of what that does. And um, and sure, they put him on a postage stamp years later. But I'm sure, given a choice, Ruben Salazar would rather still be alive. Exactly. Right? <laughs> be and he'd be, yeah, and he'd stamp. still be like writing and giving his perspective which is why he was killed. 
Yeah, and and both Denver and East LA had brown berets. Wow, they had brown berets in Denver? Yeah, tell us about the brown berets. Well, the brown berets were um, actually influenced and inspired by the black berets. They just wanted to, like, provide um, services and help to people who needed it and also to show, like, solidarity with um with other chicanos and to you know i mean i think it looks like it's paramilitary but it's really more like community building yeah 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 which the panthers were too although their look was designed to scare people that they wanted to scare yeah and i think i think brown berets were also meant to like you know, instill a little bit of like a little bit of fear into their enemies. Like you want to be, you don't want to seem so vulnerable. You want to be able to protect the children and the people who are, you're trying to help. Right. So we don't want any more Ruben Salazar's at protests and we are the Brown Berets and we are organized. And yeah, that, that kind of thing. Exactly. And the Brown Berets are still around, which is, is kind of a trip because I didn't, realize that but uh, um during you know when all the um oh my god what was that called the uh oh my i can't think my brain is not working sorry jello it's the you know the 99% we are the 99% when people were taking over certain occupy, occupy. thank you occupy when people were occupying certain places um i remember in LA there were you know there was a tent with like brown berets and i'm like oh you guys are rad i'm you know like it was cool that they were still there and still present and like I mean there's been attempts here and there to revive the Panthers and to some degree I think there are there are younger ones in different places. They had a bookstore for a while in LA. Yeah. That uh JK Lee, the singer of an anarcho bunk band called Resist to Exist, who is Korean, he identified it with them and was going down there and they all knew him there, but that was quite, I haven't heard from him in a long time, although I know he's still doing resist and resist and resisting and existing and all. Um, clearly, even, you know, growing up, um, you felt like kind of the awkward misfit kid. Yeah, I did. In school. I, I was. I don't and, know. Like, um, I don't know why, uh, what it is. I feel like, you know, we're animals so maybe like i smell weird or like something about me gives me away like when i walk into the room with a bunch of normies like they'll know like uh, she's uh, a weirdo even now you're I think saying it, that? it's i think it's forever i feel like you know i try like I, you know you learn how to engage in socially acceptable behavior but it's always worked for me i mean i feel like that's why i i consider myself an introvert even though we're having this great conversation i feel really open with you i feel like i can't talk to just anybody like even sometimes you know you ain't no introvert on stage especially not now No, i know but it's it's worked for me like i don't know how it is for you like maybe you you like like when i'm out and i have to be like focusing on like you know, engaging in conversation with people that I have nothing in common with. It's like, I'm at work and I'm doing push-ups. you know, it's like, how much of this can I take? Like, I can't wait to get out of there and go home and just, you know, <laughs> either be by myself or 
be with my family or somebody that that really knows me where I can just be. But I assume those same people who have your albums and crowd around the stage or standing a little bit farther back or whatever want to talk to you afterwards. You have no trouble talking to them, I assume, because you're talking. You got your calling card, your Alice Bag, author of Violence World Girl and all these blogs and social activism. Well, I feel like anybody who wants to talk to me, especially after a show or they've read my book or something kind of already knows me and they already know what they're getting. So I don't have to work so hard to like, um, especially my, like I've been in situations where people try and make small talk and say like, Oh, how was your drive here? Like, how's, uh, you know, how's the weather in (laughs) Phoenix? You know? And it's like, uh, (laughs) it's, you know, like I can't make that conversation without like just, I have no, no zero patience for that kind of stuff. Like it just makes me all. How is your flight? Oh, forgettable. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, the Jello Biafra calling card. I mean, I too, very introverted. At least I had other weird friends because it was a university town with scientists and stuff and National Center for Atmospheric Research, the IBM kids, a lot of warped, smart kids i was far from the only weird kid you know the people have long hair call themselves freaks just like taking back chicano or queer freak yeah i'm a freak yeah and i love freaking you out (laughs) and uh you know we didn't even we didn't even all know each other even in middle school there were so many freaks but but now yeah the, the the shy guy the wallflower if i don't know anybody at a party or whatever it's uh Right. It never leaves. And I kind of wonder, I'm especially now, how many people, if I didn't have the Jell-O Biafra calling card, would ever give me the time of day? I I don't think they would, Jell-O. I don't want to burst your bubble, but (laughs) if you like just had like a plain white t-shirt on and nobody knew you were Jell-O and you walked into a room and started talking, they didn't know anything about you, they would think you were a weirdo. That's what they think of me too. And it, well, that, that part I like. And that was that was the question I was leading up to. When did it first occur to you growing up that being different, even being weird, is good? Well, you know, my father, for as cruel as he was to my mother and as much as he had a really like negative impact in my life, he also had a really positive impact in my life because he always told me he, he would always tell me I was very talented. I was brilliant. I was beautiful. Like he would just fill my head with all these fantasies that I believe up to this day, you know? So I think like, I always had a sense of like, I'm good enough. I'm like, you know, I might even be better. Like you think, you think I don't know that, but I, I actually, so I, I always kind of had this like really um, strong sense of self-esteem and as much as like sometimes i make you know like comments about like uh you know i might have a boring story to tell or something i still think i i love myself i love who i am and i'm very confident um that if i say i'm gonna do something that i'll do it so i don't i don't even know what you asked me but like (laughs) What did you ask me? Well, no, it was just when, when did, you know, actually liking being different or even in my case, realizing I was damn near the worst athlete in the school could be a real weapon against the jocks. So they were kind of afraid of me in a weird way because I would sabotage their games in TV and PE. Oh, volleyball, time to punt. Soccer, I'll meditate in front of the goal or whatever. Yeah. Don't, please don't do this stuff, whatever. And um, some just plain got mad. But uh, e- even then, though, 
as you were coming to this and, and realizing that you still really wanted to be a cheerleader and you tried to be I, a cheerleader. I, and, and I did get to be a cheerleader, even though I didn't make it like past like uh, the selection. I mean, I made it, I made it to a uh, cheerleading camp. I was selected as a cheerleader. I uh, was about to buy my uniform because all I had was the uniform for camp, which were like, you know, little cheerleader t-shirt and like practice pom-poms and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, but then I, I, I quit because uh, I was like I had been at Garfield High School, which had like an like they treated cheerleading like a sport. And they had like they were they were, I think, the like state champs in cheerleading. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like that, like a real precision team. I wanted to be an athlete. <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, the, the people that I was hanging out with just wanted to make the boys happy. They wanted to like feed their ego, which is like not what I'm about right. at all. I've <laughs> had two different girlfriends over the years who fessed up their dark past to me well into the relationship. And one of them said the main reason she went out to cheerleader and that was a popular group was because they got the best drugs. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, by the time I got in high school, I was all done with having tried every drug that was around i mean junior high was like where everyone was doing drugs in east la that came a lot later yeah later with me but another big difference was it sounds like garfield high had gang garfield did as did your neighbor but but i eventually like i asked my parents to move me to a, a catholic school because um i felt like it's going to sound weird, but I just felt like I was coasting through all the classes and I didn't, you know, I, I was getting good grades without even like opening a textbook. Right. So I'm like, this is right. bullshit. This means I'm right. learning nothing and I probably need right. somebody to hold me accountable. So I went to Catholic school where I continue to fuck off, but I, uh, but actually, you know, some of this stuff like trickled in. So I think I, I think I was better off going to, um, going to Sacred Heart of Mary than I was at, uh, at Garfield. I also like really built a strong bond. It was an all girls school. So I built a really strong bond with all these, you know, girls that were in school with me. And I felt like, I felt a real sense of like sisterhood. Is that where you met Patricia? I met Patricia. Well, she also went to Catholic school. She didn't go to the same one, but we had a mutual friend that was, uh, at my school. We'll get to that in a minute. We've hit a little bit over an hour and a half, okay. and the ACAST people may want to squirt little quickie ads in here and there, much to my chagrin. So if you need to take a quick break, then we will take a quick break, and then Renegade Roundtable will return. Okay, we'll come back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 